following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. Really good to be with you all. Um, Our first reading this morning is taken from Psalm, Psalm 22, um, beginning at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Our second reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Mark eight thirty-one to the end. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your presence in our lives, 
in our worship in scripture as we read and listen this morning. Open our eyes and open our hearts that we may receive from your word today. Amen. In the season of Lent, we set our eyes on the far horizon of Easter and look forward to the cross and the resurrection. Traditionally, we might mark Lent by giving up something or making some kind of commitment. It's a token of our bigger commitment, the commitment of our whole lives to following Jesus. Because in today's gospel reading, Jesus seems to suggest that the only thing worth giving up is, did you catch it, our lives. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Just in case that's not clear, Jesus adds, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And then, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Clearly what Jesus wants us to think about today is what our whole life is about and how we are to give it away in the service of God. The first half of our Gospel reading had Jesus say that in his own case he will give his life away, even to death, and then three days later rise again. Peter was not impressed and told Jesus off or began to rebuke him, as it says. Peter obviously thought that he had a better idea of how Jesus was to live. Now it was Jesus' turn not to be impressed. And he called Peter, well, what did he call him? Satan, which means the accuser. He basically said that Peter was accusing him, Jesus, of misunderstanding what God wanted and that Peter thought he knew better. Get behind me, he said to him, which I guess means, Peter, you think you know better, but you don't. So take a number, get in line and follow me so that you can find out what is really going on. What is really going on is that we all have to get in line behind Jesus and follow him all the way right up to death, and it turns out beyond it. Well, how does that strike us, assuming that we even understand it? Difficult? Gloomy? Well, at first, yes, very difficult. But on reflection, maybe it's simply being realistic about what is involved in following Jesus. Maybe it strikes at something close to the heart of Christian faith, which I might set out like this from our current perspective deep in the heart of Lent. You can't have resurrection without death first. All those hopes about the Son of Man coming in glory, and Jesus effectively says, only if I give it all up first. Brothers and sisters, 
Is it possible that we are holding on to something else so tightly that we will not be able to receive the extraordinary gift of life in all its fullness that Jesus seeks to give us? Is it worth asking ourselves whether we are better at working to gain the whole world or even some little piece of it than to gain Christ? Is that the lent-shaped challenge of the gospel according to Mark today? And if that's the first question, whether we've got the challenge right, I think the second question has to be, how is that challenge supposed to be good news for us? Or in other words, what is gospel-shaped about that challenge to give up our own lives in order to save our lives? To help us here, I want to turn to our Old Testament reading from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 already points to some of the paradox that we are thinking about, the experience of loss and even abandonment that then in turn leads to an overwhelming experience of joy and peace. It's a hard balance to hold together well. But I wonder if God knows that we are going to need some encouragement in order to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Some sense of the bigger picture within which this kind of Lent style self-denial can make sense. As Christians, we're not called to self-denial for its own sake. To be blunt, Lent is not good for us because there's something intrinsically worthy about giving things up in general. Lent is important because of the way it points us to an underlying truth about the whole of life, that by turning away from some things, we are freed up to embrace others in particular, to embrace Christ. Lent is spiritual decluttering, not for the benefits of decluttering, which need not be denied, but because once we have decluttered, we might rediscover the things that matter most in the first place. Like the parable of the 21st century homeowner who gave away a house full of things that they hadn't used in years and in so doing found a single glorious pearl underneath all the stuff. A pearl they had long forgotten they even owned. Jesus told a version of that parable but it involved a field instead of a house. I guess that's one difference between Jesus and me though not to be fair uh, the only one. Anyway, if we lose sight of the treasures that we are being set free for, then Lent becomes just a strange practice of abstaining, focusing perhaps on the minor health benefits of giving up chocolate, which are real but not exactly world-changing. No, Lent is a sign that points us to the bigger picture of what God is up to in a world where we too easily settle for gaining the whole or even part of the world instead of setting our sights on God. Now, if we want to understand that, then Psalm 22 may be a good place to start. The psalm is perhaps most famous 
for its opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Famous because it is said in one way or another by Jesus on the cross, according to both Matthew and Mark. Sure enough, if you read through Psalm 22, it does indeed dwell in a place of abandonment. The psalmist is mocked and insulted, poured out like water, with his bones all out of joint, wasting away, laid down in the dust of death. And then something happens. Just before where our reading from the psalm started today, something happens that turns the psalmist's life around. Instead of focusing on the threats and the troubles, on all that has been lost, the psalmist turns to focus on God's work of rescue and salvation. After 20-some verses of despair, Psalm 22 bursts into extraordinary, life-affirming praise. We picked it up at the point where the psalmist is saying, You who fear the Lord, praise him. He calls to those far and wide, and to those not yet born, to join in the praise of God. On a roll, the psalmist exclaims, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. And then confidently, completely transformed from his earlier despair, he appeals to the ends of the earth, the families of the nations, and even to future generations to praise the Lord. And there, in the midst of all this outpouring of praise, comes this remarkable detail all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Geography will not limit the gathering of God's people, and neither will history and nor even will death. Tumbling out of the overflowing of praise in Psalm 22 comes this realization that even death will not separate us from the presence of God. Preachers sometimes give the impression that resurrection was basically a New Testament idea, but no one had imagined that life might conquer death until Jesus did so. And that's not really accurate. What was so surprising about Jesus' resurrection was not the idea of resurrection, but that Jesus himself had actually done it. The resurrection was awaited at the end of the ages, and if Jesus was risen, well now, what time must it be already? In some way or other, it must be the end of the age, or at least the beginning of the end. And working that out is what takes up a lot of the energy of the New Testament writers. But meanwhile, back in Psalm 22, they were already imagining life conquering death. And that death would not stop God's people from praising God. And all of this was just a few verses after the memorable words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the point is that the psalmist had lost everything, but their pursuit of God was entirely occupied with losing their life, and not with gaining the whole world. And yet, in the process, when everything was stripped away, 
they discovered a whole different kind of gain, which was the gain of praising God as part of God's people, far and wide, then and now, long since dead and yet to come. In other words, the logic of Psalm 22 seems to be that it is precisely when all is lost and we may feel abandoned that we discover the life-transforming and death-overcoming presence of God. How tempting might it have been for the psalmist to try to pull back from his troubles, to say that things were not as bad as all that really, and that with a stiff upper lip and a bit of stoicism, maybe they would muddle on through. But instead they set a course for the heart of lament and told God frankly how bad it was. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in surrendering to how hard it was to live a life of following God, they found true comfort in the presence of God and with their fellow participants in worship. When we read Psalm 22, we know the end from the beginning, and we know that to give up everything we have for the sake of following Jesus will, in the end, open us up to the full experience of joy in following Jesus. Not in our own timing. It's not that we can control this or can decide when to be blessed or simply mechanically go through the steps of lamenting our difficulties in order to tick off the days until all is well again. It's not a system that we can play in order to fast forward to good times. But it is a genuine affirmation that in and through the times of difficulty and darkness that life surely brings comes the promise of experiencing God's presence again. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, says Jesus, for me and for the gospel, will save it. Friends, we cannot manage the ways of God's kingdom. God's kingdom will manage us. We will not make much progress with God on our own terms. It might look like an easier path to take, to tell God which bits of being a Christian we are willing to have a go at. But it is not. Jesus frames it as an all or nothing offer because in fact he knows that setting the bar high is better for us, more life-giving for us, that it is good news for us. Let me close with another parable. One I lived out when I was young and that showed me just how much I try to manage my way through things on my own terms and the problems it causes. I call it the parable of the swimming lesson. And this again is not a parable that Jesus told. Except, uh, well, let those with ears to hear, hear. Maybe it's exactly what Jesus was saying. 
Come with me on the class bus ride to my local leisure centre. I'm about age 11 or so. It is time for our weekly swimming class, which I hated. For everyone else, this was a high point of the week. The bus transported us away from what they saw as the terrors of mathematics and English and science and a chance to have fun in the water for an hour. But I could not swim and I hated trying to learn. So each week my heart would sink as we entered the bus and were driven to the pool. And for some reason they were always playing the Bee Gees singing How Deep Is Your Love over the speaker during the journey, which simply caused my mind to drift towards wondering how deep the pool would be. And whenever I hear this song, even today, I start to dread my swimming lesson. In any case, the school wanted everyone to pass their swimming confidence certificate. Now, this was not an overly taxing level to reach and basically required the young swimmer to be able to get in the water. Well, I could do that and to swim five meters to the side of the pool. And I could not do that. My solution, as we moved towards the week where I was the only one left who had not obtained their confidence certificate, was to shuffle as near as I could to the side and then rely on the fact that I am very tall and I would half jump and half fall towards the side of the pool. A particularly inattentive instructor one week saw me do this and said, oh, that will do. And there I was with my swimming confidence certificate. But the one thing I never had in swimming was confidence. Years later, I did learn to swim in another enacted parable that I will share with you on another occasion, but I still would not describe myself as confident. What I never did was jump in the deep end. Instead, I grew up with an unhealthy fear of everything that could go wrong. I finally realized this when our daughter was four years old and we enrolled her in a summer swimming course. On day one, as I sat there worried by the side of the pool, they threw her in the water and down she went. And then immediately up she came, giggling and splashing and clearly already loving it. She has been a confident swimmer ever since. Why do I tell this story apart from to confess my sin with confession being good for the soul? Well, I sometimes think that we approach the Christian life too much like I approached swimming thinking that if we get just a little bit wet, we could shuffle along, lunge for the side of the pool and get away with not really doing it, but looking like we're doing it. But actually we need to approach it the way my daughter learns swimming. Jump in fully and trust God, trust the water that they will lift you up. If Christianity makes not very much sense to us, is it because we have tried to turn it into a spare time hobby, being religious, doing just enough to keep God happy? 
except that that never works. We end up with the spiritual equivalent of a confidence certificate, but no actual confidence. Here at St. Nick's we've started the community of St. Cuthbert as a way of focusing on what all this can mean in practice. If you're in one of our spiritual growth groups, then this is what we work on together, taking seriously Jesus' life-giving challenge to follow him. It's not something we can do alone. And so in our groups, we seek to help each other put it all into practice. If you're not yet in a group, let me encourage you to look on our website, look up Community of St. Cuthbert under where it says Ministries, and you'll find a picture of me looking suspiciously happy and an invitation telling you how to get involved. And so I encourage us to hear well. Jesus means what he says when he says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And I encourage us to see that this is good news. Because if we try to look out for ourselves first instead, then that too will take up all our life and time and energy, but it won't leave us with the blessings of hope and joy and eternal life in return. Or again, as Jesus puts it, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. This is our God, and we are God's people. This Lent, as every Lent, we are called to a hard path of following Jesus. But the deeper truth is that no other path in the end is any easier, because only on this path of following Jesus are we given back the life that we offer up and indeed given back life in all its fullness. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or in my version, what good is it for someone to gain a confidence certificate, yet forfeit their chance of confidence? People of God, this Lent season, the water is wide. Let us jump in. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.